right, good morning, faith family. Let's turn, um, if you have your copies of God's Word, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have uh, a copy of God's Word, uh, there's one underneath your seat there. Uh, We'd love for you to not just follow along with us this morning, but uh, take that home with you. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible, and we'd love for you to to read that. Uh, If you're looking for a place to start, the Gospel according to John uh, is a great place to start, looking at the life and the ministry and the teaching and the work of Jesus. And so that would be a great place if you're looking to investigate uh, the claims uh, of Christ. And so let's go ahead. Uh, from the outset, I woke up this morning without a voice. So this is a miracle. that I said, You sound terrible. I know I sound terrible. And I apologize in advance for all the sniffing that you may or may not have to hear. This is a microphone. I'm really self-conscious about having my voice amplified and all the stuff that's going on. So my body's tired. My heart's full. I'm ready to uh, jump in uh, to God's Word. Uh, Together with us this morning, we're continuing our series uh, that we've been tracking through for several months now uh, through the letter to the church at Colossae. So if you're reading your New Testament, uh, we turn to Colossians. What this is is uh, letters where the Spirit of God inspired apostles or men of God uh, to write down His truth. So we aren't reading man's opinions this morning. We believe with all of our hearts as Christians that we are submitting ourselves to the very Word of God, that this is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out. Uh, by God. And so I hope you're not here to listen to my opinions or uh, to listen to what the Christian world says or the church says. I pray that we really are coming to encounter God. And as we read His Word, if we've read it this morning, we've sang the truth of it uh, in, in a great way, we're having a conversation with God. We're talking about prayer earlier. And prayer is simply continuing the conversation that God has began in His Word. That God has already spoken to us. That this is, our prayer is not one way, it's but definitely two ways. That God speaks to us because He has revealed Himself in Scripture. So we want to interact with the truths of Scripture to truly have this relationship uh, with God. And so uh, we've been walking through this letter, and the letter is all about the glories of Christ. Paul's making an argument to this church who is tempted to walk away from Jesus. Because there are philosophies of that day that said, It's Jesus plus something, that Jesus alone is not sufficient. And so he's writing to say, say, not really to even counterbalance all of their arguments. Well, he doesn't do that. What he does is, I'm going to spend my time with you, church, to show you the beauties of Christ. (laughs) I I want you to be able to see the counterfeits by looking at the real deal. I want you to see that nothing else in this world satisfies or even comes close to comparing as it compares to the person and the work of Christ. That yes, He's supreme, He's our authority, He's our King and our God and our Savior that we must bow down to, but He's also good, and He's wise, and He's strong, and His heart and His posture toward us is open. Uh, And so He's writing to these people saying, look at Jesus. You can have all these issues in the church, outside the church, in your own life, and you're tempted to want to fill those voids or to fill that gap with other things other than Jesus. And he's riding in, and the Spirit of God has brought us here as we submit to the Word again this morning and say, those attempts are futile. They will not satisfy. It really is all about Jesus. And so he's turned in chapter 3. So we find ourselves in chapter 3 for the last few weeks. And so he says, if, or rather since, you have been raised with Christ. So if we're Christians today, we're Christians not because we did something. We're not Christians because we're awesome. We're Christians because he has raised us with Christ. We were dead in our sins. And when we come to the place to see Jesus and to believe that when he died on the cross and his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection counted for me, 
I turn from my sin and myself, and I trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. What happens, Scripture says, is not that you just came down front and prayed a prayer, signed your name on a card, or were baptized, although all of those things can be expressions of genuine life change. But what it means to be a Christian is not just even to have a set of beliefs. It's not to come into a room like this on a Sunday morning. It is to say, I've encountered the resurrected Christ, and I'm not the same. I am internally transformed. I have new life because Christ raised from the dead. Now I have been raised from the dead. And if you are positionally in him by faith, everything is different. We say here all the time that the gospel changes everything. That this message of the gospel of uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is not just the ABCs of our Christianity or of our faith. It's not the way that we enter. It's the A to the Z. It's not the diving board by which we spring off of into something else. The gospel is the pool itself. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done. And so because we believe that it's not just about eternity. When we die, we go to heaven, although that is gloriously true. The gospel has the power of God to say no to sin, to say yes to righteousness, and to see all of our lives completely differently. And get this, not just externally trying to add all of these things and see marriage differently or see our relationships differently and say i've got to now that i'm submitted to jesus i have to do what he says and i've got to just completely surrender to ideas all external let's make no mistake about it there is surrender to be had there are commands to be obeyed there are truth that we must submit ourselves to but the submission and the change and all the perspective and the truth is possible because grace empowers us So what does it mean to live the resurrected life? So I I see so many of us as Christians, we walk in great defeat and we walk in, we're just tired and we're skeptical or we're just really, really busy or self-reliant. And I don't think that's the life that Christ has called us to, that he says, if you know me and I am who I say I am, to be in me and to assume that nothing's going to change. Is a fallacy. We're not understanding who God is and the glories of Christ. And so chapter 3, what we've been walking through is just to understand what this resurrected life looks like. Yes, to submit ourselves to, but also to have freedom in. It's not just something we have to submit and change, although that is an aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. As we submit and as we empty ourselves, listen, it's when we get filled. When we die to ourselves is when we find our lives. When you said, Jesus said, when you lose your life is when you will find it. So if you're in Christ, if we have been raised with Christ, listen, we now have a transformed worldview. That's why he says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You should see things. You should see God. You should see yourself. You should see other people in this world and your job and your nine to five as an artist or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is that you do differently. Because we have now been raised with Christ. We have new life. And there's also a transformed character. A few weeks ago we talked about if this is true, if we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places to cut the ties to everything that's going to keep us from Jesus. Paul says to put your sin to death. So there's a certain morality that we must be a people who take holiness seriously. That we want to kill our sin and to put on the character of Christ. So last week Andy was talking about what it means to put on Christ. To put on all that we are. We have access into this new life. And we must put it on like we put on a coat in the morning. 
to be who we already are in Christ, to become like Jesus and follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. So this Christianity thing has everything to do with the way we see literally everything in this world. There is no sacred, secular divide. It doesn't exist. It's all sacred because everything is submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus says, I am Lord over it all. So, Here's what he's doing now. So Paul, in the, in the line of this argument, here's who Christ is, and here's who, who, who you now are because you are in him. And so it transforms your worldview, it transforms your character. But here's how it's turning. Now he's going to say, now you have a transformed community. So last week, so many of, of what Andy was walking us through and the, the verses leading up to our text this morning is to say, if this is true, then you ought to forgive. And you ought to put on love, and you ought to walk in unity together. We're going to actually come back and grab some of that this morning and talk a little bit more about it to connect it. Uh, but we have now a transformed community. Church is a, the people of God, and it matters how we interact with one another. So this week, Paul turns to the conversation. He says, okay, because you're now raised with Christ, marriage is to be seen, is to be restored now to its original intent. We're going to talk about that uh, this morning. He goes on. We're going to pick this up next week, but parents and children that whole authority structure how we ought to operate within that is now transformed because we've been raised with christ uh, next week we'll be talking about bosses and how what it means to use our work and our job and our vocations for the glory of god but what does it mean to be transformed in such a way to be a coach or to be a doctor or to be a cook but to do so under christ because that's what because we're transformed, so we, we're going to talk about that next week. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to talk about believers and unbelievers. How does it change the way we see those who aren't in Christ? How do we interact with our city? What does it mean to be on mission? We're going to talk about that, because that's what Paul is writing to this church uh, in, in his letter. But like I said, this morning, we're talking about marriage. That uh, God has now, because we have new life in Christ, transformed our, the way that we see this institution called marriage. And I know um, maybe even as we read uh, those two verses just a few moments ago, there may have been a visceral rea- reaction in some of us when we hear words like submit. Anybody? Or when we hear words like, well, what does this mean? Is marriage outdated? What, and when we say submit and headship, and as a husband is head of their wives, what does that mean? Do we just cut that part out of the Bible because our culture today is trying so hard to redefine marriage? And listen, most of us in this room, because I've talked to many of us, is that we are very uh, skeptical and jaded a bit when it comes to marriage in our culture. There's an overarching kind of tone to most of our conversations, not all of them, but most of them when it comes to marriage. There's a great fear when it comes to, especially the millennial generation, when we talk about marriage, they're afraid that it won't work or it's going to fall apart because they've looked at all the marriages in their lives, and they've yet to see one, in their perspective, it's actually worked. <laughs> and so there's a deep fear of, man, I want to be married. I think I saw a, a, a Barna research, they interviewed uh, seniors graduating high school, and 70% of them said, yes, I want to be married. I want to be married. But yet, 95% of that 70 said, but I'm scared to death of it. 
There's a certain fear that comes with marriage. And 90% of us, statistics would say, we'll get married one day. And so this is relevant for all of us, even if we're singles. But it matters how we perceive marriage in our culture today. It's one of the most controversial issues when it comes to gender roles. And are, are those a thing? What does that look like? And this institution of marriage, is it some archaic thing that we just need to move away from? Or is it something much, much bigger? It's not just maybe in our, our, our mindsets, but I know so many of us, listen, you've experienced maybe personally or indirectly the agony of divorce. Uh, you've seen the hurt that comes with severing um, the limb that is one flesh, and you've experienced it. Some of you are walking through that right now, and you know the agony of what, uh, of what marriage can be. Some of you, uh, we say we call marriage tying the knot. And some of you, if you're honest this morning, say the knot is really loosened over the years and to the point where I don't even know if we're going to be able to hold this thing together and I'm enduring my marriage <laughs> but I don't know that I would say I'm thriving in my marriage and I'm very skeptical I, I talk to men a lot um, about marriage <laughs> and so often the tone is how's your marriage and it's eh I mean, it's okay and so I'm glad that it's not blowing up and we're not talking bad about our wives but there's no th- thriving I said, man, can I just say to us again, especially to young guys that aren't married yet, oh, man, listen, don't settle for a decent marriage. And to the ladies, too, but I always pick on the guys. You can take it. Uh, The women can take it probably better than the guys can, so I'll talk to the ladies, too. Don't settle for a decent marriage. So, well, I provided shelter and provision, you know, for my spouse, and so I'm a good husband. It's like beavers do that for their family. (laughs) Like provision, like protection, like the wildlife does that. Like I think our standards should be a little higher than the little furry woodland creatures, uh, I think. Um, so, so what if there is a dream of marriage? Like I don't know that we have a dream of marriage. So what I want to do today is, is we're talking two verses. And so we'll get to those two verses in Colossians, like my last point toward the end. Because we'll never understand submission and headship and respect and love until we understand the bigger vision of marriage so i'm going to take a launching pad out of colossians and then get back up to colossians and you guys know how i do and we'll get there eventually okay but what, here's my, my prayer i'm praying that god by his grace would fan a flame and a spark again of the vision of marriage so for those of us who are married that man we would see the joy and the privilege and the gift that our one flesh union really is and that we do whatever it takes to honor it and to do whatever it takes to cultivate it Pray that he would rekindle some of that. And for those of us who are really jaded toward marriage, maybe you singles that maybe aspire to marriage, you go, man, I ain't never getting married, ever, ever, ever. Um, I pray that this is relevant for our culture today. So one day you may be married, and even if not, singleness is not a curse. Singleness is a gift from God. But if God would give you the gift of marriage to say, one day I walk in this, to actually understand what it is, what you're walking into, what to look for in a future spouse, but also how to be good missionaries and good followers of Christ in our culture today that is attempting to redefine marriage. Um, so I pray that we pull ourselves out of just the muck and the mire that is our culture's view and our own view in the church as marriage because the statistics would say the same percentage of divorce in the church is the same percentage of divorce in our culture. 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's exactly the same within the church. So we don't come here with any kind of superiority that we got it figured out because we don't. And I'm definitely not coming to some Dr. Phil character telling you anything to do about marriage because I, 
still trying to figure out what in the world it means to be married myself. And we've only been married for just a few years. And so uh, some of you guys have been married for decades can help me <laughs> with this. But what we want to do is not come from experience, good or bad, um, but into his word. Amen? What does God's word say about marriage? So let's restore the dream. So two things uh, about this idea of marriage. First, why is marriage such a big deal? Because marriage is the design of God. Marriage is the design of God. It's a big deal because he made it. <laughs> because he fashioned it. So let's read uh, in Mark 10. This is Jesus quoting Moses from Genesis chapter 2. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, so notice what he's about to say is rooted out of God as creator. So if he created it, he created people, he created you, he created men and women different. Therefore, he has the right to do what he's about to do. <laughs> See, the therefore is important. What's the therefore, therefore? It's because God is sovereign and creator. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Literally, to cleave, to be made one with. And the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What marriage is? It's two independent people leaving the authoritarian structures of society and coming together to become one and then jesus that's that's genesis 2 that's moses jesus then will add what verse 9 says what therefore so there's another therefore if that's what's true if marriage is god taking the people he's created and uniting them together to where they're no longer two independent persons but they're one if that's true if that is what marriage actually is it's the doing of god right then what God has joined together, let not man separate. So see, what we understand here, there's so much we can unpack. And this is, again, it's going to be a survey, and we're going to hit some principles. Uh, so we're not going to fully pull this out. But marriage is a work of God. So I get to do a lot of weddings around here. It's a, the awesome part about pastoring a really young church is I do marriage, marriage counseling and marriages a lot, and I love it. Um, but well, I never marry anybody. It's not the decision of a fiancé getting married together. It's not me doing it. It's not the courts. It's not the law doing this. It's God joining them together. God does that. As a pastor, I'm just a mediator of that covenant that's happening. I have nothing to do with it other than my submission comes from God's word. God is the one um, that's doing this. He has woven this into the fabric of creation. And listen, this is a good thing. So if you keep reading Genesis 2, when Adam gets to see his girl for the first time, he like breaks out in poetry and gets all poetic and romantic and is like thanking God for this gift of his spouse. And he goes, whoa, man, like that is what I'm after right there. That, she's beautiful. God, thank you for this sweet gift. See, this design of marriage, the way God has intended it, is not a bad thing. The design is for our delight. It's a good gift. So listen. God's design is not broken. We're the broken ones. Like, what I want us to see is like we want to say marriage is outdated, it doesn't work. No, no, no. What if God designed it really, really well? <laughs> and it's for our joy. Marriage the way God intends it. But we're the broken ones. We bring in, uh, we rebel against this good design. And so the design is for our delight, but why? How? So marriage is the design of God, but second, marriage is the display of God. So here's why marriage is such a big deal. And we're, we're going to spend the rest of our time together unpacking this statement that marriage is the, the display of God. 
And I want to do so by looking at Ephesians 5. We'll be back to Ephesians 5 a lot uh, this morning. But here's Paul quoting Moses, quoting Jesus. <laughs> we just looked at Jesus saying it in Mark. Now look at Paul writing it to this church. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Verse 31, he's just repeating Genesis 2, repeating Mark 10. But he adds something, Paul does, by the inspiration of the Spirit. This mystery. So what's happening when God joins together two independent people to become one flesh? What's happening? What's the bigger purpose? Well, it's profound, and I'm saying that it refers, it, the mystery of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So we just read that husbands should love their wives and wives should submit to their husbands and this one flesh union, this covenant. Why is it such a big deal? It's because it says something about God. He says this marriage is like, as Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. So an integrated point of, with one another but also connectivity to the head. That We get our cues from the head and we submit to the head. Without the head, there is no life. Like, first, let me just take a pause and say, how beautiful is that? Of what the church actually is, is that we're a body, and that Jesus is our head, and that we're to submit to one another as, out of reverence to Christ. We submit to Christ by submitting to one another. And what it means to follow Jesus is this oneness with one another and this oneness with Jesus. And he says, that is the purpose of marriage. is the way that a husband and a wife are one. The way they no longer seek their own and their own preferences and their own comfort and their own wishes and wants, but instead they die to themselves that the other might flourish. And there's clear submission and authority and leading and loving. It says something about the relationship with Christ and the church. The one flesh union of marriage is to be an illustration, a picture, a billboard that's saying, hey, look at the gospel. That is why marriage is such a big deal. So this is what is the reality at stake for our culture today and for us here in in our own lives, in our own relationships. To have a low view of marriage is to have a low view of God. And to not accurately portray marriage rightly is to not accurately portray God. So our marriages, the good and the bad, say something they testify of something about the nature and character of god and his love and his relationship with christ in the church that's why guys listen that's why this is not political i don't care where you are on the red blue purple polka dotted i don't care your religion your um, political affiliation this is not a political issue this is a gospel issue regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum this is if we can't change the definition of marriage because it's not ours to change god has designed it and said this is why I've said it's this way, and it's actually a good design. The design's not broken, and that design itself, the way he's wired it, is to display the gospel. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So, I have three points. Think I can get through them? I don't know. We'll see. Three points of how has God designed marriage to display himself. So that's why marriage is such a big deal, but how does this happen? How does God display himself through covenant of marriage we want to unpack these things uh, together the first two will hopefully be quicker the last one will be a little longer so if i take a long time on the first and second one you have every right to be nervous okay that's what that means here's the first one the aim of marriage the bullseye of marriage is the glory of god it's the glory of god so i'm gonna go back in colossians uh three 
and just grab some things that Andy talked about last week. But verse 17 of Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, this includes marriage, <laughs> in word or deed, do everything. Dirty dishes, paying the bills, mowing the yard, loving your wife, enjoying intimacy together, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Another place in Corinthians, Paul writes and says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's the same thing here. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're giving glory to God. We use that word a lot in the church. What in the world does glory mean? For the glory of God. What does that mean? He's saying that your marriage is fundamentally about showing the worth and the beauty of God. Glory is inner excellence seen, experienced. So when we say God gets glory, it's we see him rightly. We see him as worthy of praise. And marriage is meant for that. So listen, I'm going to move on. Here's a statement for us all. Marriage exists for God more than it exists for us. Marriage is more about God getting glory, and I say more about who God is than it is about us and our happiness and having a companion to skip through life with and like to have babies with and to have, share a home with. Like It's not just about the couple's happiness and the couple's companionship there's something much deeper happening here and so there's a lot of practical truths that we could walk through and i wish i had time i was wrestling with this sermon to say should i make it so theological or should i get really practical but here's my conviction theology is practical because there's a lot of things that would help us have better marriages to learn how to communicate better learn how to steward our money and learn how to navigate the complexities of intimacy together and all those things are important they're very important premarital counseling and things there's a space for that but listen all of the problems of our marriages, all the practical truths and all the foundations we can lay um, are really secondary compared to this main one. Here's the main dilemma of marriage. If you get this right, everything else will fall into place. Is, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Are you submitted to his lordship? Is God in his glory at the center of my life? Now, don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your future spouse. Like, think about you, us as individuals. Is God at the center of everything you do? Are you surrendered to him? And then we've got to ask the question, is your spouse, is he at the center of everything for him or her? And are you submitted, are they submitted to everything that God would have? And if that happens, if both parties are submitting to the Lordship of Christ, they'll have no problem submitting to one another. So the most important question that we can ask, a lot of questions we may have about marriage, and they're good ones, but the most important question is, is, is God the Lord of your life? Not What's in it for me? And what's best for me? And this is part of seeing marriage in light of eternity. Marriage is less about the things we think marriage is about, and it's more about eternity. Will our lives count then? Live this day in light of that day. When you begin to see marriage in that arena, the fights begin to dissipate. Like it's hard to hate one another and to be at odds against each other if you're living on mission. It's really hard to stay angry at somebody if you're praying together. You ever tried to pray with somebody you're mad at? Like, God smite them. Like, you know, like it's hard. Like, <laughs> issues will come out if you pray with your spouse. Like, if you're angry. Like, there's a mission here. Uh, and that's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Right? Seek it first. And then what's he say? You remember? All these things will be added to you. So, yeah, man, I'm not making light of whatever hurt we've had in marriage. But if you'll seek Jesus and surrender to Jesus, all the other stuff, I guarantee you, will fall into place. So the aim of marriage is the glory of God. It's not about us. It's not about our happiness. 
It's about Him. It's about Him getting praise. It's about being on mission with Him. It's about living our lives today matter in light of that day when we stand before Him. The glory of God is at stake in our marriages. Number two, I told you I'd go quick. The hope for marriage is the grace of God. The hope of marriage is the grace of God. So here's the reality about marriage. Marriage is two sinners saying, I do. There's two people becoming one. There's two people. Apply Romans 3 to individuals. That nobody seeks after God. Their mouths are open in graves. It's like, what in the world? Like, big, we're all sinners. None of us are holy. None of us want to be holy apart from the grace of God in Christ. That's just who we are. We're selfish people at the core. We don't have God at the center. We have placed ourselves at the center. And both of us are bringing in that sinful heart and the sinful tendencies to a marriage. There's going to be conflict in marriage. And some of that's based upon sin, that we actually sin against each other. Some of it's just based upon strangeness. What I mean is you're just different. And it's not actually sin issues. It's just that your personalities are different. But because of our sin, we're going to clash against one another. So there's only one problem in marriage. One. You say, uh-oh, my marriage has got a ton of problems. Have you talked to my husband lately? Like, there's a ton of problems. No, there's only one problem, and that problem is sin. There's only one solution. The solution is a Savior. It's Jesus. It's surrendering to Jesus. Our culture says, I'm in marriage as long as I'm getting something out of it. I love you as long as I get something from you. That's about my happiness. But the gospel says, gospel-filled marriage is saying, as Christ has been to me, so I will be to you. How has Christ been to us? Well, <laughs> gracious. <laughs> we just sang it. But I want to read verses 12 through 13 uh, real quick. Um, of Colossians 3. We were in it last week. But just now apply this. So Andy did a great job showing us how this is Christ. I just want to take it and say, now think about this in the context of marriage. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, wives, ever had a complaint against your husband? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So again, I can't spend a lot of time on this, but everything you need in Christ, you already have. He says, you are holy, you are loved, and you're chosen. If that's true, you know what? You're now freed to not need everything from your spouse. They don't become your God. You're now able to relate to them as the gift, not God, because you have everything you need in Christ. You're holy, you're loved, you're chosen. But then get this, every sin you experience in Christ is already taken away. So we've got to believe that grace is applied to me. I've received grace. My identity is not in a married person or a single person. My identity is in who Christ says that I am. And now it frees me to love and to be selfless. Because I don't have to protect myself anymore. But we also have to turn that same grace paradigm in the gospel to our spouses. And the gospel says, if God would remove his wrath from you and place it on Jesus, why would we not remove our wrath from other people? Why would we ever hold a grudge? Why would we ever not forgive if the gospel is true? Yes, it's true for us, and we need to claim it to walk in freedom, but it's also true for your spouse if they're in Christ. That you're both on equal playing fields. You're not the victim. You're both the sinners. (laughs) And you've both experienced the great grace and mercy of Jesus. So see each other from that perspective. And grace changes from the inside out. I love this list he says compassionate heart that's an internal heart like Andy was talking about last week 
of, of compassion toward one another. And it's going to work itself out into kindness. When you have compassion in your heart, it's going to be a life of kindness. Then he says, have humility. Do not think more of yourself or less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. When you have that posture of heart, then you have a meekness. A posture of, I don't have to win everything. You're not my enemy. I'm not going to fight against you. I'm going to fight for you. And then patience. He says, you're going to be patient. And then you put up with one another. Forbear one another. Literally put up with one another and forgive each other. Why? Because that is what Christ has done for us. And marriage works best in the safety of this covenant that says, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to live out this grace. I'm going to receive this grace. And the way that the gospel or the way that marriage displays the gospel, listen, guys, is precisely in that it says, Jesus isn't going to run out on me. He loves me relentlessly. It's a covenant here. He's not going anywhere. And because of that, now our marriage says, we're going to show grace. We're going to relate to one another the way God has chosen to relate to his church. And that's to say, I'm going to deal with your sin by atoning for it. And I'm going to offer you grace and righteousness and forgiveness. And I'm delight in showing love and patience towards you. That is our God. That's the context of marriage. I want to read a quote. The words will be up on the screen from Tim Keller. If you're looking for a book to read on this topic, his book just titled Marriage (laughs) is really good. He could have come up with a more creative title, I suppose. But the book's excellent. And here's a quote from it. When over the years, someone has seen you at your worst, and knows you with all of your strengths and all of your flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly. It is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us against any difficulty life can throw at us. See, that's the bonds of covenant. It's not a contract to say, well, if it's not working, we're going to leave. We're going to quit. No, it's like, no, we ain't quitting because God doesn't quit on us. And it's that kind of deep intimacy and deep knowledge of one another and a commitment that says we're staying, that marriage grows. So discipline of marriage is the soil in which the flower of delight grows. You can't have that kind of intimacy if you don't have commitment. And covenant, because that's the kind of God that we serve. But lastly, and really, really quick, the purpose of marriage is the gospel of God. We've already said it, so it's going to be quicker. So the purpose is the gospel. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We've already said this is a, a, a picture of Christ in the church. But notice what he says. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Or wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husband is the head of the church as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. The way we live out our God-given, distinct but equal roles shows the gospel in ways that nothing else can. So listen, wives, if, we, if you submit or resist this role of submission and help, you're saying something false about the church as it relates to God. And husbands, if we do not lead and love our spouses in the roles that God's designed us to do it. We say something wrong about Christ and the church. This is a big, big deal. So real quick, we'll talk about the submission and headship thing. Wives, reflect the church as you submit to and help your husbands. So here's what submission is not. Submission is not, does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. 
Submission does not mean leaving your individual will at the wedding altar. Submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. It doesn't mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength through her husband. And it doesn't mean that a wife is to act out of fear. Here's what John Piper says that submission is. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It, listen, it's a dispensation. It's an inclination. Listen, the command is not, husbands, you make that girl submit. Like, that's not what's happening here. Okay, I think somebody, we read it that way. He's saying this is a reality that God's designed marriage to be, is that wives, you should have a posture of heart and an attitude and an inclination to submit to your husband as he leads and loves, because that's the way God's designed it. It is not to say he must cause you to submit. It's saying this is the way he's wired it into the fabric of marriage, that when you do this, it's for the, the flourishing of your husband. It's a decision of the woman to trust God's design and to trust the heart of her husband. But husbands, we're called to reflect Christ as you use your responsibility to serve and lead your wife. So, verse 23, for the hus- Ephesians 5, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So here's what headship is not. You ready? Headship does not apply for all men to all women. Doesn't mean that men are the heads of women. <laughs> That's definitely not true. Don't listen to other dudes, okay? Women, you're not like inferior. It's to say wives are to submit to their own husbands, not women to men. Husbands, headship does not mean that men are more important or valuable, nor that men has the ultimate say without the wife's input. Headship is a statement of fact of the identity that God has given husbands. It is not a command for husbands to act as head over their wives. Say, you are the head. I've given you the responsibility. It's not saying you must beat her into submission. That is not what it means. But it's perceived that way in our culture today. Headship is not the husband replacing the authority of Christ in the wife's life. Here's what headship is. John Piper in his book, um, This Momentary Marriage, defines it this way. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership by giving physical and spiritual protection and provision in the home. You know what it is? It's to say, listen, guys, God has said the responsibility for your family's flourishing in Christ is on you. You have the responsibility, and leadership, headship means you take initiative. You lead. You get out in front. It's for their flourishing. So this is not saying, I'm the leader, so I'm going to do it from get my wants met, my needs met woman you need to submit to me no no no. this is the leadership like christ leads he says you love your wife as christ loved the church how did he love the church gentlemen he gave himself up for her so it's a leadership of sacrifice you lead the way in dying (laughs) you lead the way in saying i want to see my wife flourish to become like Christ. Christ is doing that to his church. He took our sin, took responsibility for things that wasn't his fault so that we could be presented holy and blameless and have joy. And as husbands, we are to lead. He said, you have the responsibility to lead, but do not lead out of a place of pride. You lead out of a place of humility and you lead like Christ. And you take the initiative for the joy and the flourishing of your bride. And listen, ladies, what lady would not want to submit to leadership like that? Submission is not, well, I'm going to, Guess I just don't have an identity anymore. I gotta do whatever that joker wants me to do. Like that. 
It's like we want to submit. Like authority is a good thing. If a boss kind of tells you something at work, and you're like, man, and you can tell he's clearly out for his name, what he wants, he's an authoritarian boss, you go, man, I don't want to work here. Submission feels like bondage. But if you get a boss that has clearly has a place of authority and responsibility for you, but he uses it to see how can I make you win? How can I make you flourish? How can I set you up in opportunities for you to knock it out of the park? You want to submit to that boss. You want to go to work with that boss. That is a good thing. Submission is a natural overflow of when we see loving leadership laying down our lives for the good of our brides. So headship is saying we're equal. (laughs) Equal, but distinct. And God has charged the husbands in the marriage to have first accountability, responsibility, to take initiative for the flourishing of the family. But the wife is called to submit and to help her husband flourish and respect him and admonish him to use her gifts to see that happen. So as we close, listen, this is a good design. To go back to the, what we originally read, is God wired it this way. When he made Adam and Eve in the garden with this headship, he looked at Adam and said, you're called to cultivate and to create and to keep. It was Adam. He had the responsibility. And Eve was a helper suitable for him. And listen, Eve was not in that moment feeling like that was a drudgery. It was a joy. I mean, there's a verse in the Bible being naked and unashamed. That sounds pretty awesome. Right? Like, this is the design that God has made. It's a good thing. So submission should feel more like freedom than bondage, um, really. But here, because of sin, it's all twisted. We use our headship now to be overly aggressive, or we're just passive, or we don't lead at all as men. And women now say, I don't want to find my rightful place of humility, and just as the husband has humility to submit to one another, I don't want to have that. I'm going to resist that. So I'm going to be domineering. I'm going to be manipulative. And it's now all broken. What Christ has done is say, listen, I want to restore the identities and the roles of marriage to adequately display the gospel. So as a husband lovingly submits and serves his wife, and as the wife gladly delights in and submits to her husband, and they do so together as equals, it says something about the gospel and Christ, how he leads us, how he loves us, how he's steadfast for us, and how the church gladly submits and delights in Jesus and follows him in every area of life. It says something about the gospel. And listen, submission is not a bad word. Uh, I want, I was gonna, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but I'm going to now. 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to see this. Just hang with me. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. See, headship doesn't mean we, have, we call the shots. Like, we submit to Jesus. And the head of every wife is her husband but notice and the head of christ is god what in the world does that mean and we even see this in the relationship with the trinity is that christ gladly submits to the father gladly and the spirit says i gladly submit to the son and to the father but we would all say if we're not heretics (laughs) that the all three people of the trinity are equal they have distinct roles the father is the father and the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit. They have each roles in, in the Godhead and what it means to bring salvation. But those distinctions does not mean that one is better than the other. Because if you say that because Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father, therefore the Spirit and the Son are lesser than God, we got a problem with our theology. And, and, and say you're a helper, ladies, it's a good thing. God, I think six different times in Scripture, uses that same word to describe himself. God is a helper. It's elevating. It's a beautiful thing. And when we are adequately doing this, 
it reflects the gospel, but also reflects part of the Trinitarian relationship of mutual love, mutual submission, and encouragement, but distinctions. And those distinctions are hardwired by God for His glory and for our joy. So, if you'll bow uh, with me, we want to respond to this gospel. So, so Derek, all right, that's on marriage. That's great. <laughs> Thanks for all of that. Um, but I want to read another quote from you as your head is bowed in a posture of prayer. Uh, here's why we would say all of this, why we preach so long about this one topic. It says, Christian teaching does not offer a choice between, between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. So what do you need to make marriage work? The gospel. The gospel says, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. So, a couple things. Husbands, if you're here and you're married, love your wives. Lead her. Submit to Jesus and see the gospel and be compelled to serve your wife and to do whatever it takes to die to yourself to see your bride flourish. Don't get lazy. Don't be arrogant. Lead out of love. Headship should feel more like serving than authoritarian dictatorship. So may we repent of our areas of aggression and pride and say, Jesus, would you make me into the husband that you called me to be? Wives, gladly submit and affirm and respect and help your husband to say this role that you have in marriage is in no way lesser it's just different you would gladly submit and affirm your husband as you see him leading thank him for that don't tear him down don't manipulate spur him on to lead well do so in gentleness both and to say i want to see our marriage reflect the gospel so what you may need to do is just pray for your spouse this morning. If you're here and you're not married, pray for marriages in our church. Pray for your people, your marriages that you know. Pray one day for your future spouse. Parents, pray for the future spouse of your kids. That this would happen. That we would see the beauty of the gospel through marriage. That we take marriage seriously. So maybe you need to confess sin to your spouse right now or maybe after the service. Say, what does it look like for us to chase hard after the glory of God for our marriage, to be about the grace of God in our marriage, to see the gospel displayed through our marriage? Let's let our lives count for that. But for all of us, we are going to sing this song of thanks to the hope and the shame, the healing of the shame and the guilt and all that stuff. The hope is that Christ is the bridegroom and we are his bride and he doesn't walk out on us. So as we sing this song, I want to read this over us. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So he loves you. That's the good news of the gospel is that he will not quit when it gets hard. He's in it. May our marriages reflect that, but may we all celebrate this covenant marriage that we as his bride have with Christ, our husband, that he's faithful and his love doesn't quit, doesn't give up on us. So let's stand uh, in a posture of prayer. Let's sing this song really quickly out together.